KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. Cross country requires a willingness to just grind and grind, and there's not that much grinding and track. You know, you go out and run a mile, it takes four minutes and 10 seconds or whatever. You're running cross country, that's 25 minutes. So you can just grind it out. And one thing I could do was grind it out. And our guest this week is Kevin Quinn. He spent nearly a half a century running the track and field and cross-country programs at St. Joseph's University, uh, one of the greatest of all time when it comes to Philadelphia track and cross-country legends. And, sir, thanks so much for the time. My pleasure, Matt. So the last year's been crazy for everybody. I know you had been doing some volunteer assisting at Penn. Uh, What's the last year been like for you here in the midst of the pandemic? Well, the last year has been really pretty distressing, actually, with uh, my my wife and I have been pretty much isolated from everybody. And our, our children are nearby. And we have seen them with Zooms and things like that. But it's been it's been very difficult. With it starting to loosen up now, it, it's it's getting getting better. I really did miss being down at Penn with the with the women's cross country and track program. The other thing that I also missed, uh, I had another volunteer position. I was a uh, volunteer at Independence National Historic Park as a uh, a tour guide. I uh, had done that many years ago when I was teaching at Roman Catholic High School. That was my summer job. And uh, when I retired looking for stuff to do, I uh, figured I'd give that a shot again. So the history hasn't changed. I remembered all the talks. So so I was doing that once a week and going down to Penn once or twice a week. So I was keeping busy and then suddenly everything went. Assuming things continue to loosen up, are these things you'll look to get back into? Uh, I'm planning right now on getting back to Penn. Uh, I've been been in contact with uh, Steve Dolan and Matt Goslin, and I'll be back involved with them beginning in the fall. I'm not so sure about going back to Independence. A little reluctant about, uh, this will mark me as a coward, I guess, a little reluctant about taking the subway down in town and uh, dealing with a a lot of people. So I may not do that, but we'll see. So let's talk a little bit about your career. You went to St. Joe's prep for high school, correct? I went to the prep. Yeah. When does were you know, as an athlete, as a youngster, were you drawn to the idea of running track and field or were you a kid that kind of did whatever was in season? Well, first of all, I wasn't much of an athlete as a youngster. I loved it, and I tried everything, but I wasn't really particularly good at anything. I have many stories of my inadequacies, I guess. Um, But when I got to high school, I I did try out for various sports. I tried out for the rowing team. I was short, and uh, so I tried out as a coxswain. And I was such a lousy steerer of the ship that the now they didn't worry about kids' feelings back in those days. Uh, the coach told me 
once I got the boat back on the dock after almost piling it into the Girard Avenue bridge that uh, I didn't have to bother coming back. So I got cut from crew. I got cut from swimming. I got cut from baseball. And I realized that uh, as I was going into my senior year that I, I didn't have anything to put under my name in the yearbook. I didn't have anything. And uh, well, in a murals. And uh, a friend of mine was the captain of the cross country team, and he was recruiting kids uh, to get as many kids on the team as possible. And he told us that the, uh, the coach of the team said that any senior who lasted the entire season would get a varsity letter. And so that was good enough for me. And so I went out for cross country. Did you enjoy it? And were you good at it at first? Well, uh, yes. Yeah, miraculously. And I don't know why. Well, I do know why, partly. Our family didn't have a car. And so for transportation purposes, I would run from my house to my friend's house and so forth. But uh, no, I, I, I did have success almost immediately. And the more success you have, the better you like it. So, yes. So you come to it as a senior. Do you start, when does the idea that you could, this could be a vehicle for college or you could do it in college figure in because that's kind of a late start. Uh, you know, how does that all come together? Well, it was almost like, you know, you, for me, when I found out that I was good at it, I, I, I grabbed it and I took it to me and it became really, really important. Almost, almost immediately I became psycho about running just because it was something that, that I could do. So how much were you running when you first start between training, between meets, you know, how many miles a, a week oh, were you, would you be logging? Well, you know, I didn't, I knew absolutely nothing about running. So I, I didn't keep a journal. I didn't keep track of anything. And back in 1957, when I started, uh, the idea of volume and stuff like that was not a, uh, a prevalent thought. So I, I would say probably just like 25 miles, maybe. So you talk about not knowing about it, but when do you start to learn how to run? Like, when do you start to learn about, you know, breathing, pacing, stuff like that? Probably the best way to learn is by making mistakes. So that that's that's one way I learned. But like I said, I, I became a fan and read and started reading about running almost immediately. You know, uh, it, it became something that that I really wanted to do well. You go to St. Joe's for college. Were there other schools you were looking at, or was it always going to be St. Joe's? No, we were we were a St. Joe's family. We were a St. Joe's prep family. We were a St. Joe's college family. My father went to St. Joe's. My two uncles went to St. Joe's. I went to St. Joe's, obviously. One of my brothers went. And, you know, we have a whole family succession after that. But no, I, I the one thing I did was, when I took the SATs, you get to have two scores or scores sent to two schools. So I had my scores sent to St. Joe's. And as a good Irish Catholic boy, 
I had my scores sent to Notre Dame. Never made an application, never did anything, but just I sent them someplace. So in some basement out in South Bend on microfilm probably or my SAT scores, and I hope that they stay there. So you go to college at St. Joe's. Did you pursue cross country and track and field? Did you just pursue cross country? What did you look at from a, a running standpoint once you got to college? Oh, oh no! If if you, if you run cross country, you run track. That so I, I went visited the office of George Bertelsman, who was the the coach and also the athletic director at St. Joe's, and asked if I could come out for the team and. Uh, he was very welcoming. I came. I was allowed to come out for the team and uh, had some had success. Yeah, I mean, you held the records for what the one mile, the two mile. Uh, you won a cross country championship in in sixty yes. one, or you're the first American. I'm sorry, into in a cross country championship in sixty one. So, you know, how much fun is it? I mean, you talk about taking the running right away, and then you couple that with this type of success, uh, how much fun is that? How much fun was it? Yes. That was the reason for me to go to college. It became, I mean, obviously I was going to go to college with, for all the reasons, but, but that became the, the focal point, the center point of, of what I was doing in college. I was running. What would you say was your favorite length or excuse me, distance event? You know, what would if you could have only picked one during your heyday as a runner, what would have been the one thing you, you would have focused on? Well, I really enjoyed track, but I was probably better at cross country. Cross country requires uh, a, a willingness to just grind and grind. And gr there's not that much grinding in track. You know, you go out and run a mile, it takes four minutes and 10 seconds or whatever. Well, that's not very long. Uh, you're running cross country. That's 25 minutes. And that's uh, 25 minutes where you get an opportunity to make a lot of choices and you have to make decisions. And uh, so you can just grind it out. And one thing I could do was grind it out. So yeah, I, I love cross country. When you were running those distances and you say the 25 minutes, what would you be thinking about? Did you have things you would focus on or were you just kind of free and easy and out running? Well, there'd be days when I was out in the woods just being free and easy and just running. Uh, but when you're racing, uh, it's again, it's the idea of you have to make decisions, making tactical decisions and and then later, at some point, late in the race, you have to decide to just, no matter how much it hurts, just keep going and going. And sometimes you're able to fight through it. And unfortunately, there are some times when you're not able to fight through it. When you say make decisions, kind of take me through the types of decisions. Would most of them be, do I put forth a burst of speed here? Do I lay back? What types of decisions? I mean, obviously, I'm sure it changes race to race. But, you know, when you're in the heart of it, what are the things that you're check, you're checking off that you have to decide uh, what what's going to give you the best chance to win? Well, you know, you, you get your position in the race. You, you either go right out to the front and try to lead it. Many times in, with stiffer competition, you have to, to be a little more cautious and kind of work your way up into the uh, – the front of the race. Um, 
the, the main thing is, and especially in cross country, uh, when I was coaching, I, I had a lot of pet sayings. I used to drive the kids crazy with them. And one of them, which they could never understand when I started with it, was the hills are your friends. Because ordinarily, you would think the hills were not your friends. The hills were the worst part of the race. Well, but if you could convince yourself that, yes, in fact, the hills are your friends, and this is where I make my decision that I'm going to push when everybody else wants to slow down, I'm going to push. It's amazing the number of people you could get rid of who would let you go because you were going to push it. So that was the beauty of cross country. There weren't any places like that in a track race. There were no hills on the track. But in cross country, there were hills and and you could get people, you could get the other people to quit. I mentioned you held school records in the mile, the two mile. You had a, you know, you were a two-time Mac cross country champion, two-time qualifier NCAA in the mile. Of all the things you were able to comp- accomplish through cross country and track during your days at St. Joe's as an athlete, is there one that you're most proud of? One thing that, you know, if I asked you to kind of tick off your accomplishments as a runner, that would be at the top of the list? Probably the the, the best race. The best race that I ever ran was the IC4A cross-country meet my senior year. Uh, it was at Van Cortland Park, about two inches of snow on the on the course. Uh, I was the only member of our team that Mr. Nicastro, our coach, took to the meet. And it was just the, the high point. The gun went off. I got, I got right out. Uh, I got in third place. And... Um, at one point late in the race, there was a, a, a runner from a, a, a local school that will be nameless. Um, okay. So there was a guy from Villanova who, <laughs> who was in front of me. He was running with a, the, uh, an athlete from Cornell. They were first and second and I was running third and we had just gone past the three mile mark. And I was, flabbergasted that I was in third place this this was beyond possible and as we started to go back into the woods again and we approached what was known as cemetery hill now you can imagine what cemetery hill was like uh here comes my friend from Villanova he's coming back to me and as I go past him and I'm now into second place we start up Cemetery Hill, and I was about five seconds behind the kid from Cornell, 10 seconds behind the kid from Cornell, and started working the hill. I attacked the hill, and I started to close on him, and I was closing, and I was closing, and I said to myself, my God, and this was, this was the best moment of my running career, I said to myself, I'm going to win the IC four A's. I'm going to win. And I fought my way up the hill, came down the other side. I got to within five yards of Stephen Machuka from Kenya and Cornell. He thought he was winning. He didn't realize there was anybody near him. He turned around 
he saw me and he took off. And there I was, man. He hung me out to dry. I had 700 yards to go. And oh my God, it was, that was the longest. So I made it, I got 300 yards from the finish line. And a kid from Penn State came past me. And so I wound up third. But, but the, that, that was the best race I ever ran. And I always use it as an example for my kids because you don't have to win to run your best race. But what you have to do is make a decision and then really go for it. And it was, it was impactful in practically everything I did and athletics after that. Now you, in addition to the distance with cross country, you did some marathoning too, correct? Well, I, I ran one marathon. Just one. Okay. I, I, as a senior, the, the marathon that you might, they called it the Mer- Berwick marathon. This was a road race and it wasn't really a marathon. It was a nine mile race. And I ran that post collegiately. Um, I did run a, Real 26.2 marathon, uh, the Philadelphia Marathon. I just turned 39. I had made my, I had put a lot of weight on. I started running, jogging, and then got back and got back and became pretty competitive. Um, it was very, it was very difficult because I was, I had two full time jobs. I was teaching at Roman Catholic High School, I was the assistant disciplinarian at Roman Catholic High School. And then I was the coach at St. Joe's. So I, and then I was trying to do some training. So, but anyhow, um, and there was a lesson to be learned in the, in my one marathon race. I I had a time that I I wanted to break three hours. And to do that, I had to run seven minutes a mile. Well, gun goes off and fine. I'm running along, running And I got to the 20-mile mark, and I felt tremendous. So I picked up some guy. He, you know, I didn't know him. He joined me, and we started running. And at, at 22 miles, there was a, uh, a bicycle, and that bicycle meant the first woman. I said to the guy, let's go get her. I changed my plan, and I went after her. Well, I got her, went by, and got to the 24-mile mark and fell apart. Started, I actually had to walk. It was, it was I, I, could, I just shut down completely. And so my male vanity got in the way of me running under three hours. So I wound up running 314 or something like that. And if I hadn't been foolish, I would have run 257. And I could sit here and brag to you that I cracked three hours. Well, but that was the one and only marathon that I ever ran. So when does coaching come into your head? When does the idea of coaching, uh, is it something as your competitor, you think that this is, might be something that interests me? How does it come about? Well, I, I, knew, that, I knew that I would want to be involved in coaching at at some point when i graduated college i primarily wanted to continue running and and so i did so i ran the berwick marathon and and i won the berwick marathon and that was a uh, yeah 
you know, kind of a nationally known race. Um, and then I was running indoor track in the January, February of 63 and uh, making good progress, set a PR at the Philadelphia Classic. And I tore my Achilles tendon. And I went to a doctor at Penn. And basically what he told me was that if I continued running on it, I was going to sever it and I would wind up being crippled. Now, the advice that he gave me was not good advice, but it's the only advice that I got. So I, I turned from running and I started coaching at Roman Catholic. Because that was just that was a way to stay involved with something that I really wanted to do. And you were this, you were already teaching at Roman, correct? I was already teaching at Roman. Yes. So when does the opportunity at your alma mater, St. Joe's, that's around '66, that comes to pass, yeah, right. correct? Mr. Lou Nicastro, who had been who was my coach at St. Joe's, um, and coincidentally, he taught at Roman Catholic High School and was instrumental in me getting my job at Roman Catholic High School. Um, he decided to, re- decided to retire in uh, the spring of 66, and I put an application in, and Jack Ramsey, uh, who was the athletic director, um, he hired me. And I always make the joke that Jack Ramsey knew exactly what he was doing. He hired me and quit St. Joe's. <laughs> And he went off to the 76ers or wherever he went. Yeah. So I was the last hire of Jack Ramsey. So when you take over as coach, you know, do you feel comfortable? You know what you're doing? Are you lost for a little while? How, you know, uh, where are you as far as your development? You had the experience of coaching at Roman, but I would imagine college, it's a different, it's a different ballgame. Yeah. Matt, I'll tell you, it, it was a completely different ball game. I was 25 years old. There were kids on my team almost as old as I was. Uh, and uh, I was 25, and I looked like I was 21. I wish I could say the same thing now, but uh, I was a, a youthful 25. And uh, so... W- we we had our we had our moments those first few years getting the uh, I, I was very confident that I knew what to do as far as training the athletes. I wasn't necessarily completely certain I knew what to do in dealing with the athletes. How long does it take for you to feel comfortable or to find your pace when it comes to dealing with the athletes? Uh, well, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know that I can answer that question because one of the things I learned was that you, you keep learning. I was, I was still, I was making mistakes in my 49th year of coaching. So uh, not as many, but there were things that weren't necessarily for the best. So um, I, I had one incident that took place my first two years. Um, and I think that in a way this, this helped me. I, I had some very, I, I was kind of almost a dictator <laughs> when I first started because I wanted to be sure that I was in charge. And uh, I wound up having a rule that none of the kids were allowed to play intramural sports. So this was, you know, so there was 
basketball, football, and so forth. And they weren't allowed. Well, I found out quite by accident that one of our star athletes was playing intramural football. And uh, that star athlete, as a matter of fact, would later go on and play in the National Football League. Vince Papali was playing intramural football. And I there was an article in, in the Philadelphia Bulletin about him playing football. I went through the ceiling and Vince wound up being suspended from the team for about six weeks for playing football. And it was very hard, but I think it did, did some good with the team kind of in a strange way that, you know, yeah, the star and Vince was the star and he was tremendous, you know, that the star was being held accountable. Well, then everybody's going to be held accountable. And uh, so that that worked out. And then a whole new thing happened when I started coaching the women, because that was a completely different game. So I was coaching men and women. This is in the mid 80s. And uh, that was that was a real change of pace. So those first, your first 20 or so years, you were specifically just the men. Just the men. For the cross country and the track. Do you remember the first moment when you kind of felt like all the pieces were fitting together and I get this and we're having some individual success, having some team success. Do you remember that first, whatever that first time was when you're like, we're going to be good. Well, having just said all of that, I think it was actually my first season. Mr. DeCastro had left me. He left the cupboard full. We had a tremendous team. And we wound up going in outdoor track. We went undefeated and won the Middle Atlantic Conference Championship my first season. And it was the athletes. It wasn't me. But that kind of gave you a gave you a foundation to build on and then we repeated it the next year and that made me feel like I really knew what I was doing Uh, and then I found out that what you really need also are really good athletes because all my seniors graduated and uh, the the cover wasn't quite as full and so we went back to reality I guess for a while but uh, those two seasons uh, did give me a lot of confidence. To that point of the cupboard being empty full, how long does it take you to get your head around recruiting? I hated it. <laughs> I, I despise, I, I always hated it. Uh, I, I hate the telephone. I, I feel comfortable doing this because I can see you on the screen. When I'm talking just on a telephone, it's, it's, it's awful. I, uh, having gotten involved in high school teaching, You'd think that would have helped me with dealing with young kids, and in a lot of ways it did. But I also, after a few years at Rome, and got involved in the uh, discipline office, and I kind of created a more serious persona. Uh, I didn't dis- develop a real shtick with with kids and stuff like that. So re- recruiting was a challenge. It was hard. I didn't like it. That being said. What is the, when you're in the track, the cross country realm, what is the most difficult event slash distance to recruit for? What's the most difficult to find uh, high level kids in? 
Well, I guess, I guess it's going to be for recruiting kids for events that they might not think you know anything about. So, for example, I was a I was a middle distance distance runner. So if I was talking to a kid about middle distance or distance running, they would kind of assume, I guess, that I kind of knew what I was talking about. Um, when you start recruiting, and I had very good success at this, I don't know how, uh, jumpers. I, I enjoyed jumpers. I enjoyed recruiting jumpers. And uh, we had tremendous success with jumpers. But I think that that could have been like the most difficult thing. What does a relative, you know, slow guy know about the triple jump or the high jump? And, uh, well, the thing you do is you read books. And then I taught myself how to high jump, for example. And I actually, I high jumped 5'4", which doesn't sound very good, but I was 30 years old and it was pretty, that was pretty good. So you learn by doing, you know, so the, and then once you get one jumper, it, it snowballs after that. So I, I, I was very fortunate. I, I got one very good high jumper early in my career at St. Joe's. His name was Fred Maglione and he went to Monsignor Bonner High School. I, I was helped out because my brother also went, one of my brothers went to uh, Bonner and was on the track team. So I knew Fred and, and Fred wanted to stay home. So Fred came to uh, St. Joe's. He was the first seven foot high jumper in the city of Philadelphia. So that kind of gives you a little bit of uh, credence with people. And so then we wound up getting more high jumpers and then other jumpers. Time for a break on one-on-one. We will have more with legendary track and field and cross-country coach Kevin Quinn right after this. I'm Jay Scott Smith. Every day, my colleagues here at KYW News Radio uncover stories in our neighborhoods. These are the things that people are so frustrated with. Sometimes it doesn't all fit on the radio. None of this was captured on a surveillance camera. But we talk about it on The Rundown from KYW News Radio. Listen free on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back on one-on-one. Our guest this week, Kevin Quinn, who spent 49 years coaching track and field and cross-country at St. Joseph's University. So you're teaching, you're coaching. Kind of take me through, <laughs> in the heart of this, like, quote-unquote, the average day. Like, you, you know, you, I'm guessing you have to be at school by 7, 7.30, if not earlier, uh, teaching a day. And then, you know, kind of take me through what would be a full day at the, at the, the heart of your career. When I was still teaching at Roman, the heart of my day would be that I would get to school at seven o'clock, quarter after seven. When I was running, I would sometimes run to Roman from Bala Kenwood, which was about a seven mile run, get my morning run in. But I would be conducting detention from 730 to quarter after eight. Then I would have job at my uh, work in the discipline office, and I would also have three classes that I would teach. Uh, because I took on a job that nobody else really wanted, nobody else wanted to be the assistant disciplinarian. It was a crappy job. I was able to get out of school a little bit earlier so I could get out to St. Joe's. So I get out to St. Joe's by 2.30, 3 o'clock, have practice, and then get home 
to my wife, Marie, and eventually to our six children. And then I would have the, the joy of maybe two or three nights a week getting on the telephone for a couple of hours and doing my favorite activity, recruiting. So, so I'd, I'd get to bed at 10, 30, 11, and then get back up at 6, 30, 6 o'clock and start again. So I'm just, you know, juggling the two careers. And as you mentioned, oh, by the way, six children. Uh, do you ever look back and go, how in the world did I do that? Cause I, I had a point in my life early on where I worked three jobs and I was single and I was just three jobs in three different towns. And I look back and go, I don't know how I did that, but I mean, you just do it. But do you ever look back and just kind of in awe of yourself? Well, and my wife will probably never hear this, but I have a tremendous wife. Uh, my wife, Marie is this marvelous woman. And um, she governed the house. She, she, she was tremendous that way. Uh, so Roman and coaching, that was difficult. Being at home, and being at home of course, had its, had its moments. But uh, my, my wife was, was really a tremendous asset to me. So I want to make sure I have the timeline you know, that I mentioned when you started St. Joe's, you're doing the men's side and that's from 66 to 88. You started women in 85. So you had a few years there where you were doing both. And then the final 30, the final 27 years or so, you were just the women. Am I correct? Yes. Yeah. What? I had, I, I did get uh, tremendous assistance Another sign of my brilliance, I hired, I had had many very good assistant coaches, but I got uh, Mike Glavin, who had run for me at St. Joe's, graduated in 78, uh, had been a tremendous distance runner. Uh, he uh, went into coaching. He had a very successful coaching career at Paul, the sixth high school in New Jersey. Uh, and then he came over and joined me. He was an assistant coach taking care of men's cross country initially. And then he expanded into eventually actually taking over the entire men's program. And he's been the coach at St. Joe's now for 35 years, something like that with tremendous success. Now you alluded to this earlier in our conversation, but when you start with the women, was it almost like starting at ground zero again? Uh, what was the, that, transition like getting used to coaching women well one of the things that i eventually found out and this is one of the reasons why i felt there were several reasons i felt very comfortable doing this but i actually wound up enjoying coaching the women because one of the things that the women did then and do now but especially then uh, first of all they were scared to death of me they were scared to death of me. I was the men's coach and this severe guy. And um, they listen extremely well. Many times with the men, I would be dealing with people who thought that they knew more than I did. They knew better. They wanted to do it their way. The women were much more willing to kind of accept this guy, yeah, 
He's had guys to the NCAA meet. He's had this. He's had that. He knows what he's doing. So when I told them, they would do it. So in a lot of ways, it was easier. So when the when it, when it became obvious that I had to make a decision, I was doing men and women, and despite Mike's help, I, I just couldn't do that all, do all of that. So I had to make a decision, and as much as I love the men, I decided that I would coach the women strictly. Yeah. Was it tough when you start to focus on women? I mean, you'd been the head of that men's program, and I know how much respect you had for coach at all, but to not, if you saw something, to not say something just because it had been your program for so long, or were you able to completely turn your focus and this is where I have to be? And obviously, you know, if there's questions, you're there to answer, but was it hard not being in charge of the men's team that first year or two just because it was such a part of your life for so long? No, and I'll tell you, I, I had – and this, I mean, this is absolutely true. I had absolute confidence in Mike Glavin. He's one of the finest coaches th that I know. And so I, I was blessed to have him with me. And I felt completely comfortable just going, here you go, Mike. It's yours. Take care of it. I'm going this way. And, and it, it worked out perfectly. I, one of the strange, one of those few times, I was absolutely right. What do you think, you know, you're, I think it was 147 seasons between all the yeah. the teams over 49 years at St. Joe's, uh, lots, so much success. If you had to kind of scout yourself as a coach, why were you so good? What was the, key, what were the keys that allowed you to, to have the St. Joe's program at such a level for so long? Well, uh, Along with, you know, technical knowledge and coaching knowledge and stuff like that, I, I think that I really wanted the kids to be successful. I really wanted them to be successful, and I think that they knew it. I, I think it was, it was just that simple. Wanting, wanting them to be – I got so much out of being good. Now, this sounds awful. I got so much out of being good that I wanted them to be good. So many, you had dozens of NCAA qualifiers, you had all Americans, you had conference champions. Is there one feat, one performance from your coaching career that if you had to point to kind of like we talked about your athletic career that you would have to point to as the, the thing that sticks in your mind most, is there one you could point out one performance from a, from a kid or a team performance over the years? Well, I could go. I could go for about four hours on this one. I can't give you one. It has to be two. One's woman. One's a man. Donna Crumity was the NCAA champion in the triple jump. Her career at St. Joe's was tremendous, and the way she won the NCAA championship was just out of this out of this world. When she was a sophomore. We went down to Duke. The NCAA was held at Duke. And Donna PR'd by two and a half feet at the NCAA meet. She went in with a best of 42 feet, and she came out with a best of 44 feet, eight inches. At that time, 
That was the fifth best triple jump by an American woman. Just she was such a competitor. She just rose to the moment. The next year at the NCAA meet, which was held at Eugene, Oregon, again, now she was not an unknown. Now she's a known commodity. Well, and she was in the competition and in second or third place. Uh, coming into the last round, a girl from Texas came up with a really big jump and went into first place. And there was universal rejoicing among the Texas athletes because it looked like she had won. And Donna got herself composed. And, and this, this, was, this was funny. Uh, you allow me. Donna came off the field and she came over to the fence and she wanted me to tell her something. And this is probably the greatest coaching moment of my life. She came over and I could almost feel people watching, you know, because here's the, the kids coming to talk to the coach. And so, coach, what do I do? I said, Donna, stand up tall, drive your knees, and do it right. She went back, boom, down the runway, boom, 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 44 feet. She moved into first place. Now, kid from somewhere, last jumper, had been the leader. Now she's been moved back to third place. She's standing back there, and she went to one of those power five schools, football school, and she's back there, and she's huffing and puffing and psyching herself up and doing all, going through all these mental gymnastics. And she came driving down the runway, pop, pop, pop. She fouled. So I don't know what she jumped. She could have jumped 48 feet. I don't know. But it didn't matter. And so Donna Cromedy from John W. Hallahan High School, a school which they are closing this year, uh, became St. Joseph's University's first and only NCAA champion. Now, on the men's side, I had a fellow. His name was Joe Genfler. He was one of the finest young men that I ever coached. He came from a wonderful family. His mother would pack a, a cooler of food for our team when we'd go off to indoor meets. I think it was tremendous. Joe had been the Catholic League champion in the half and the mile. He was very gifted. Joe wanted to be so good that Joe, for three and a half years, did nothing but get in his own way. He tried too hard. Sometimes you have athletes that don't try enough. Well, Joe tried too hard. Well, indoor track his senior year at our conference championship, he wound up getting second in the 1,000-yard run Middle Atlantic Conference, he, he was beaten by a kid from Drexel, ran 214 or something like that. Next week was the IC4 raise up at Princeton. It was suited to Joe because he was a strength runner, and they ran trials, semis, and finals. Ran trials and semis on Saturday, finals on Sunday. He had three races. Well, he got through. He got through the trials. He got through the semis. We're down in the basement of, of Jadwin Jim as he's getting ready. And, and we got together. We said a little prayer. 
and, and I've said this, and it sounds corny, the Holy Spirit touched him. Joe Genther went to the starting line, absolute peace. Gun went off, six and a half laps. He went right into second place. He followed the leader, followed the leader, and coming up to the bell lap, the Holy Spirit spoke to him. I always talk to them about hearing a voice, that you know what to do because you will hear a voice. It's your instinct, my joke. It's the Holy Spirit. And when you hear that voice, well, Joe went to the front with 250 to go, and he just hammered. And it was funny because there were three uh, runners from Villanova, Charlie Dickinson, and Richmond, three Kenyans. And they were busy watching each other. They didn't know who this guy was. So he goes out and he bolts out to a 10-yard lead, and they just let him go. They're watching each other. They got that over on the backstretch, and suddenly they realize this kid's not coming back. And so Joe Genther won the IC4As. He set a new school record. He ran 210 for 1,000, improved by four seconds, qualified for the NCAA meet, and it was the most well-deserved victory in the history of track at St. Joe's. So 49 years at St. Joe's, when did, when did retirement, when did you start to kick it around? Was it something that you saw years in advance or was it just kind of, there's one season you're getting ready and you're like, you know what? I, I kind of feel like, I, I don't know if, how much longer I want to grind. And like you know, this. Matt, I'll, I'll tell you that that is exactly what happened. I was, do, I was doing great. I was doing, I was, enthusiastic I was vigorous and in my 49th season now obviously 50 is a landmark which I was I'll almost say desperate to get to I you know I really I really wanted 50 and um I guess a little nagging voice maybe a little bit but at the end of the season as every coach and any coach would do you get to the end of your season and you do a review. You look back, what we do, what should I have done, blah, blah, blah. And then you look ahead. And as I looked ahead, I couldn't feel myself generating the enthusiasm for next year that I knew I should have. And, and I had told myself a long time ago, I don't want to be that guy, that guy that stays around too long, you know, and there are guys that stay around too long. Well, I don't want to be him. I hope I wasn't him, but I was going <clears throat> I didn't discuss it with my wife. I didn't discuss it with anybody. I just came home one day and said, "Hun, I'm going to retire. That's it. And when I went and spoke to uh, Don DeJulia, our athletic director, who is a wonderful, wonderful athletic director, wonderful man, Great boss, but I went and spoke to him about it. It's Don, I, I, it's you know, it's it's time, and uh, it just, I guess I heard my voice, the same voice Joe Genther heard. I heard it too. A year or two after you retire, they named the track after you. 
at yeah. St. Joe's. What does that mean to you? And what what was the reaction when you learned that? Uh, well, I, I, it's it was extraordinary in that um, I, I took it for what it was that it was a tremendous compliment. I don't know that it's deserved, but it's a tremendous compliment. Uh, and and uh, my grandchildren think it's great because the track's named for Pop Pop, and uh, it's so it's my track. You know, that's my track, and uh, they they think that's pretty funny, pretty cool, actually. Mention you have six kids. One of your daughters, Colleen, is the head field hockey coach at Penn. She's had a great deal of success at Penn. We had her on the podcast several months ago. As a coach and a father, what is it like to see her have that the type of success she's having? And how much, I know the sports are different, so it's different approaches, but how much is she like you as a coach? Well, I, I, for, I, I take it as a great compliment if she was anything like me, because she is a tremendous, she's a tremendous coach. I, I guess we're alike in our intensity and things like that. I coached so long that actually by the, I had calmed down. I used to be a psycho person like Colleen, uh, and then I gradually calmed down. Uh, I don't think she'll ever calm down. She's knowledgeable. She gets on with her team so very well. Her girls love her. They they love her. And, and the people who she recruits who don't go to Penn, they love her too. I've bumped into people, uh, you know, parents at games and stuff, and they, oh, why are you here? Oh, my daughter coaches Penn. And, she, and the mother of somebody from Brown or Princeton, Oh, you mean Colleen? Oh my God! And then they, I get a five-minute rant on the, how tremendous Colleen is. So, uh, yeah, she's 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 terrific, and I, I don't know that we're really alike, other than our love and passion for the sport. She loves the kids as I love my kids. Um, yeah, she's terrific. And we mentioned off the top that you're you do some volunteer coaching at Penn and you hope to do that again uh, going forward. Was that just, did you miss it a little bit when you kind of got removed Were you approached saying, Hey, would you be interested in helping these couple kids? How did that come about? Well, I, I have to thank my girlfriend, Colleen. She, uh, she, her office is on the same floor as the Penn track office. So she has, quite a bit of interaction with them. There was a uh, woman coaching the Penn women's distance runners. Her name is Julie Benson. And she is a tremendous coach. Very, very good. Uh, She coaches professional athletes, uh, some who have gone on to the Olympics. That's how good she is. Um, Well, Julie asked Colleen if she thought her dad would be interested in doing any volunteer work. So Colleen came and asked me, and uh, I I told her that that I did have certain things, certain requirements that I would be interested in it. I had been away for it for a year, and I, as a volunteer, I wasn't allowed to recruit. And so that's fine. That's great. That's burden number one out of the way. 
The other thing that I don't want to do, and which I'm sure she was very comfortable hearing, I didn't want to make up any of the workouts for the kids. I, in effect, wanted to be a resource. I wanted to be, my joke is, I'm the team grandfather. I got the stories. I got the good advice. I got all of those things, but I didn't want any burden of trying to, I, I was done with coaching. I, it had been, become a, a burden. And so I don't want to coach. Let me make suggestions. And Julie was fine with that. Steve Dolan was fine with that. Uh, Julie has since left. Matt Goslin, who was the present women's distance coach, he's fine with that. So I just go in and watch the workouts, maybe make an observation. Maybe I have a story to tell them. So they all heard the Joe Genther story. They've all heard the Donna Cromedy story. They've all heard the IC4A story, you know. So that that's all I want to do at this point. Yeah. And it works, so it's, it works out fine. Kevin Quinn, thanks so much for taking the time. Hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Matt, thank you so much. And it was wonderful preparing for this. I, you took me down memory lane and I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank legendary track and field and cross country coach Kevin Quinn for being our guest this week. If you like the show and you want to help us out, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. Now you can follow the show on Twitter at one on one pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon 1060. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to check us out again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.